Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is all theater. It's all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Day. This is Ellen Ferguson, and I'm a senior reporter with CQ Roll Call, and I'm going to be subbing for Jason Dick on this edition of Political Theater. I'm joined today by Jamie Berger, who's a writer on a documentary um, looking into agriculture and agricultural policies and effects on people. She is part of the team that produced The Smell of Money, about North Carolina and its hog industry. And I want to start off with just a real basic question for you, Jamie, is why did you, how did you get involved in this project and why did you get involved in this project? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. Really excited to talk to you. So I was born and raised in North Carolina, grew up there, went to college there, And I first started learning about environmental issues in high school and then kind of made that my focus in college. And I wanted to to do my undergraduate honors thesis on an an issue that was relevant to my home state, the environment, and uh, the impacts of industrial animal agriculture, which is kind of what I had ended up focusing my studies on. So Naturally, I picked the pork industry. If you know anything about North Carolina, you know pork is huge. Barbecue is kind of the the state's, you know, culinary claim to fame. Uh, So I really wanted to look at not only, you know, that industry's kind of history in the state, but its, you know, economic impacts, its uh, effects on the environment, on people, on workers. You know, I looked at history of labor struggles, all, all different elements of the industry. But the one kind of piece of the puzzle that fascinated and honestly disturbed me the most was the 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 industry's history of of environmental racism. And I looked at a lot of research on that topic. I interviewed residents. I you know interviewed academics who had studied this. And that's that understanding that issue really drove me to become become an advocate for change to the food system. So then years later, I was working at a nonprofit uh, doing video production, and a colleague of mine who is the director of the film and my co-producer suggested that we work on a feature-length film together. I had never done that before. This is my first film, but I was excited for the challenge, and this is the topic that I brought forward that I thought would make for a truly compelling, powerful story. So as you mentioned, the film is about the pork industry and its impacts on humans. So we really looked at kind of the human side of what industrial animal agriculture, you know, 
the basically the harms that industrial animal agriculture causes to the people, specifically people who live near mega pork operations, or as they're sometimes called, CAFOs or concentrated animal feeding operations. So, yeah, the film focuses largely on the the residents um, and and their stories. It was a pretty lengthy um, sort of following the residents through court cases and um, appeals and sort of waiting and all of that. All And all told, uh, it was about nine years, wasn't it? The lawsuits lasted for nine years. Our filming process was about four years, and then uh, it's been an additional year that we've been on the festival circuit with the film. Well, what do you hope to accomplish with the film? We have a number of goals that we're hoping to accomplish with the film. I think the biggest one is for the film to be an advocacy tool for organizations kind of working across the spectrum to improve the food system. And we've been really honored and excited to see that people in all different fields have found, you know, a way to use the film to achieve their own goals. So, you know, that could be people who are fighting for stronger protections for public health or people who care about climate or the environment or people who care about civil rights and human rights, people who care about animals who are impacted in our food system. We've found that our film has, in a really beautiful way, brought people together who wouldn't normally necessarily be aligned in their fight, but who have a, a, you know, a tool now to use to achieve their goal to to create a better food system for all of us. So I would say that's that's one big outcome that we're hoping to achieve. We'd also love to see policy change come from the film. Um, you know, we're hoping to get the film in front of policymakers on a local level, state level, federal level if we can. And you know, there's there are a number of policy changes that we'd love to see. I think you know, one is just kind of placing a moratorium on the construction of new factory farms on new CAFOs. We need to move away from this kind of system of production. And I think that would be one big solution that could help get us on that track. I think we also would love to see more uh, funding and effort put behind helping farmers who are also kind of trapped in this system be able to transition out to other forms of agriculture that are more sustainable, healthier for them themselves and their communities. Um, we'd love to see breakup of you know, unhealthy consolidation in the industry, which is a big reason why this industry and Smithfield in particular, which is the company that we focus on, on our, in our film, have amassed so much power and have been able to externalize so many of their costs onto, onto communities. So those are some of the big things that we'd love to see start to happen. I can share more about policy change if we get to that down the line. But um, yeah, we, we really want to see communities use this as a tool and be able to actually bring it into into action in their own advocacy. Well, that's that's quite a list you have in, in terms of uh, ultimate policy goals. Uh, I'm going to kind of focus on Congress because that's what I cover. I know that Senator uh, Booker of New Jersey has been an advocate for the film, an advocate for changes at the federal level as it regards the different uh, agricultural practices. Um, have you gotten any other lawmakers at the congressional level interested and involved in moving towards some of the policy changes you'd like to see? We haven't been in touch with any specifically, but um, I know that 
Cory Booker, you know, has a number of colleagues who have co-sponsored and, and supported the pieces of legislation that he's introduced to this effect, namely the Farm System Reform Act uh, and the the Industrial Agriculture Accountability Act. I know he has a number of other folks involved. I believe Ro Khanna is a co-sponsor on those. So, you know, we haven't we haven't connected directly with them through the film, but we definitely are excited to see that there are additional champions in Congress behind this kind of this kind of effort. Well, do you believe there needs to be change at the federal level or are you believe that faster change will come at the state level? I do think there needs to be change at the federal level. I think part of the challenge that we see at the state level, especially in North Carolina, and this is true at the federal level as well, but I, I think it's almost in, in in this case even more pronounced at, at the state level is that the industry, the pork industry and, you know, big agribusiness has a lot of power. I mean, it's it's difficult to understate the amount of power that the pork industry has at the state government level in North Carolina. You know that I like to say, in some cases, the industry and the government are one and the same. There's really no separation there, and we've seen time and time again that elected officials at the state level in North Carolina will choose to side with the industry over the interests of their own constituents. So, you know, I think that is the case at the federal level to some extent as well. But so much of this is, you know, it comes from federal policy. So many of the problems I think originate there. I think the fact that subsidies are really stacked against more sustainable forms of agriculture and really prop up big ag. That's one of the big, big challenges that we see that comes, you know, from the federal level. I think that, again, the monopolistic practices that are prevalent in in the agribusiness industry, that's a federal problem to a large degree. And I think just the, the way that the industry, again, has been able to externalize so many of its costs onto workers, consumers, you know, farmers, even the environment, all of that also stems from federal policy in one way or another. I think when it comes to enforcing existing regulations, that, you know, that comes more at the state level. And in North Carolina, we often see that state agencies, particularly our state environmental agency, is is really strapped. It's uh, underfunded, understaffed, and it's difficult for them to enforce the regulations that are in place. So there definitely are some changes that need to happen at the state level, but I think it's it's a it's a situation of both and for sure. Okay. Um, going back to North Carolina, in 2018, and I, I was remiss in my opening and not uh, specifying this, the film follows um, residents in North, on Eastern North Carolina, who have been dealing with um, odor, flies, uh, constant truck traffic, dead hogs in dumpsters that get picked up at various hours um, for a number of years. And the primary, I guess, thing that's centered in the film are these uh, large uncovered lagoons, which are basically pits for manure and urine and runoff from the hog sheds. Um, and, and looking through the uh, Fourth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals uh, majority opinion, you know, they talk about 15,000 animals, up to 15,000 animals, and 153,000 pounds of feces and urine each day kept in these open lagoons. But shortly, uh, I guess, after the 
lawsuits started, I guess, in 2018, Smithfield announced that it was going to be covering those lagoons and was going to uh, get into the biogas field. Is that enough of a change or does that, is that really change? It's a great question. I think in, in large response to the negative public, you know, perception or the perception of the industry, you know, shifting as a result of the media coverage of the lawsuits, Smithfield, yes, responded by saying, okay, we'll go, we're going to cover these lagoons and that'll, you know, solve the pollution problem. It actually just entrenches the problem further. Advocates on the ground and those who have worked on this issue for decades, researchers looking at this have, have come to realize that that doesn't actually address any of the pollution problems and might even make them worse in some ways. They're still going to be, you know, you described the lagoon system. What happens when those uh, those pits of, of manure fill up is that that manure is then sprayed into the air. And, you know, they do that under the pretext of raising crops, of fertilizing crops, but it's actually just a cheap waste disposal method. And that won't change, you know, with the with the transition to using uh, the methane from the covered lagoons as as biogas or bioenergy, that pollution problem will will remain. And, you know, so that doesn't that doesn't do anything to stop the flow of this waste into nearby rivers and streams or stop it from impacting nearby residents, you know, through air pollution, water pollution odors, you know, and all those other nuisances that you mentioned, the truck traffic, the dead pigs, uh, the vulnerability of these facilities in in hurricanes. Uh, you know, North Carolina specifically is is a really hurricane prone state and all of these facilities are located in the in the eastern part of the state, the low lying coastal plain, and we have a lot of hurricanes come through that area. So when that happens, there's there's, you know, you always see the headlines of about millions of gallons of waste spilled into into the waterways uh, and just just absolute devastation that happens. So none of that will be cleaned up uh, with the industry, you know, starting to to produce biogas. I think the other important thing to note about this is that, you know, that produces another revenue stream for the industry. It's another profit generator for them, which gives them more reason to stay in North Carolina, to continue their practices, to continue business as usual. And I think the kind of insult to injury part about this too is that to transport that gas, the Smithfield is building pipelines through these very communities that have already been dealing with so much uh, harm from the pollution, from the other nuisances that we've talked about. So it really isn't a solution. It's more of a greenwashing kind of PR spin that the industry is doing to, to improve its image. Well, uh, biogas uh, is one of those uh, revenue streams that uh, Agriculture Secretary Vilsack has talked about as creating more opportunities, creating um, building economies in rural areas. So basically you're saying that's misguided? I think so. I think building economies in rural areas would look like helping farmers and helping this industry transition to something that is actually more sustainable, that would provide actually more jobs. I think that the industry really relies on this kind of talking point that it's boosting the economy, it's boosting, you know, the availability of jobs, when in fact, the number of farmers has dramatically de declined over the past several decades. 
and there are far fewer agricultural jobs available as a result of this consolidation and, and industrialization, whereas farms that produce other types of types of crops, mushrooms, for example, hemp, that we see some farmers starting to transition into, those actually provide more jobs to the community while also addressing pollution problems in a, in a meaningful way and addressing you know harms to surrounding community members they're often more you know more viable for farmers as well uh, i think it's important to remember that that farmers in this system are often bound up in really restrictive con contracts with their integrators with the big uh, agribusinesses they're not able to get out of those if they want to move to something else because of their level of debt that they're in so you know this is a i think this is a an industry that really fails everyone uh, whether we're talking about farmers, whether we're talking about workers who, you know, slaughter slaughter plant work in particular is one of the most dangerous occupations in the country. It's very low paid. It often relies on immigrant labor, and you know, there's a lot of a lot of uh, you know look. Uh, there's a lot of kind of examination of the harmful kind of uh, labor practices within that industry. So I think on the surface, it's easy to say, oh yes. You know, we're moving into clean energy and and that'll provide, you know, more opportunities for people. But really, that's just putting a Band-Aid on a system that needs to be radically transformed. And I think we'll see actually a, a greater boost to rural economies, to farmers, to the people who live in rural communities uh, if we actually kind of reimagine this system instead of just placing a Band-Aid on it with with biogas. Well, why don't we talk about the communities that you followed in your film? Your primary person was Elsie Herring. She came to kind of represent, I guess, the drive and the determination of many people. But my understanding is overall, there were about 500 people involved in what eventually boiled down to five uh, lawsuits. They won at the jury level. You know, they had their uh, damages capped by state law. But what can you tell us about those communities and what's going on there, if you have any idea at this point, after the film? Unfortunately, situation, the situation for those community members hasn't material, materially changed. As you mentioned, there's a North Carolina law that was championed by an industry-friendly legislator that caps the amount of damages that residents were able to receive through these lawsuits. So unfortunately, you know, you know, we saw some some big numbers come out of those, but that's that's not what translated into what residents actually received. You know, our, one of our our primary subjects, Renee Miller, who lives in an area where she is absolutely surrounded by these these mega farms. You know, she still drives a school bus. She was able to pay some of her medical bills, but her situation is largely largely the same financially. And in terms of the pollution itself, none of that really has improved in, in any way. You know, Renee and other residents who we speak with report that they still have animal waste sprayed on their homes and their property on a regular basis. You know, we've visited North Carolina since the, the conclusion of the lawsuits and nothing is different. The lawsuits didn't require the industry to actually make any, you know, any substantial overhauls of their practices. We don't know exactly what was stipulated in, in the, you know, in the settlement because that wasn't released to the public. 
but we can say from our experience and from the lived experiences of the residents in eastern North Carolina that nothing is different, that the pollution is, is just as heavy as it has always been and, and even has gotten worse in some cases because the industry sort of was on its best behavior during the lawsuits and now it's kind of resumed its, its you know, harmful practices in, in full force. So what keeps those communities going? I think they they really have no choice but to keep going. I mean, so many of the people we've spoke spoken with in eastern North Carolina have said, I'm going to fight until the very end because I have to, because this land means so much to me. So many of these residents, you know, this land has been in their family for generations. In the case of, of our one of our primary subjects, Elsie Herring, the land had been passed down to her from her grandfather who was enslaved. You know, this the land in eastern North Carolina means so much to the community members there. And, you know, many of them were born and raised in the homes that they still live in. And I think for them, it's it's a matter of, you know, fighting for their basic human rights, for their dignity, for their ability to breathe clean air and drink clean water and and just enjoy the homes that they've they've lived on for so long. I think it's also about, you know, wanting to protect their family members, protect the the new generations of people. We met a lot of children in eastern North Carolina who suffer from asthma and other respiratory problems. So I think there's a lot of motivation to, you know, to work to to fight the industry for for their, you know, their rights, for for the land, for their families, and just for a better future for everyone. Now, the film is on the festival circuit at, at this point. How many festivals are you going to going to show at? And um, how will you know if you've been successful? So we've shown at over 20 or so festivals so far, and we have a few more to go um, through the springtime. We started last April. I think we'll know that we're successful. You know, we'd love to get distribution for the film. It's a bit of a difficult time for documentaries right now. There's not a lot of, of movement in terms of, you know, major streaming platforms purchasing documentaries due to some kind of shifts in that market and turmoil. But, you know, we're, we're optimistic. We haven't received any rejections yet. So we're hopeful that we'll be able to, to get distribution for the film. And we're also starting to do, you know, we've been doing a lot of community-led screenings. So we've had about two dozen or so of those as well. And we're offering the film to anyone who wants to screen it in their community. So we've done a lot of screenings with, you know, local grassroots organizations to national uh, nonprofit groups to um, schools, you know, universities, um, high schools. So we're really hopeful about being able to get the film in front of as many people as we possibly can. And again, to have those communities um, and, you know, those advocacy groups be able to to use the tool, the film as a tool for, for their own missions. And what sort of pushback have you gotten from agricultural groups? Interestingly, we haven't really gotten much pushback yet. I'm curious to see what that'll look like if it happens. I mean, as we state in the film, Smithfield was not willing to speak with us. Even the kind of PR front groups that they passed us over to ended up declining interviews with us. So it was really difficult to, you know, we we had a, a true, genuine interest in trying to include Smithfield's perspective and, you know, the industry's perspective in our film. And we were able to interview some uh, a farmer and a former farmer, but, you know, who, who were kind of open with us and, and, you know, willing to speak on camera, but 
yeah, we haven't we haven't seen much pushback yet, but I'm curious to see what that will look like if it does happen. That's that's sort of interesting because just looking at the um, supporters of the of a subsidiary that um, um, owned the farm or had the contract with the farm uh, that was the subject of your uh, documentary. You know, there's uh, some of the big ones like the American Farm Bureau Federation. You had the Chamber of Commerce. Um, you know, a lot of various interests, you know, siding with essentially Smithville Foods. Um, so it's kind of um, surprising that you would not have felt much in the way of pushback, just sort of silence. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah, I think we've been met with silence so far. If I'm wondering if maybe once the film is is you know streaming online and more widely available, we'll see more pushback from the industry. It's you know film festivals are not typically a place I think the the meat industry hangs out. <laughs> um, and you know, like I said, most of our community screenings have kind of been been held by organizations that are aligned with sort of the the mission of the film. Um, so yeah, maybe once it reaches a wider audience, we'll see some pushback, but for now it's, it's been pretty quiet. And uh, for future documentaries, do you expect to go back to agriculture or are you gonna go on to other subjects? I, I will plan to stay, I plan to stay looking at agriculture and, and I think particularly the animal agriculture industry and its, its effects on people. There are so many stories that need to be told along those lines you know when we were filming out in north carolina we kept coming across other kind of related issues you know issues related to 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 this industry and its impacts on people that we wanted to to tell those stories that we wanted to include of course there's only so much you can do with 80 an 84 minute film but i'd really love to look at you know this the pork industry's impacts and and even the poultry industry's impacts on on workers uh, you know, we interviewed a, a slaughterhouse worker. We interviewed people who live near slaughter plants, and there's so much there. I mean, a lot of similar problems of human rights abuses, uh, pollution, and you know, just kind of the the spillover effect of that that kind of inherently um, violent um, operation. I think that has that has a really significant impact on on surrounding communities and, and on residents and workers. So that's something that I'd, I'd love to explore in future films. Well, it'll be interesting <laughs> and probably grueling. I know. Um, I don't, I don't make should... comedies. <laughs> should make a comedy sometime <laughs> soon. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? I guess I'd just love to add, you know, if you're interested in, in checking out our film, you can follow us at smellofmoneydoc.com. That's our website. Uh, we list all of our screenings there, so festival screenings and, and community-led screenings. You can also request to host a screening if you'd like, and you can also follow us at smellofmoneydoc on Instagram and Twitter. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jamie. I appreciate your joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. 